Hello, Hugh Ronzani here from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and welcome to our inaugural podcast, Tales of Baroque. This episode will focus on Handel, his life, relationships, and some of the more glorious and ceremonial music he wrote. Today my guest will be Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Welcome, Alan. Lovely to have you here today. Thanks, Hugh. It's great to, to talk to you. So, uh, Handel and Ceremony. I was hoping that we might get a little bit behind the scenes and to what happened in the life of Handel, but especially uh, the, the sort of inner workings of politics in London and uh, how it came to be that he composed the Coronation Anthems as mm. well as other works and where they sit in his, um, in his career. Yeah, a lot of these kinds of pieces we tend to think of as just works that kind of stand by themselves uh, outside their uh, what happened in history at the time. But of course, they were written for particular purposes at particular times for particular people, and uh, if they don't really make any sense uh, as works of music either, as works of art, unless we understand a bit about where they came from. Indeed. So history has it that Handel wrote the coronation anthems the most famous of which being Zadok the Priest. But what do we actually know about the relationship between Handel and the British monarchy? And where does this story really start? Yeah, there was a long connection between Handel and the British monarchy, which actually went back before King George I was even the, the British monarch. Right. Uh, you may remember the story of how Handel, as a young man, uh, was... Um, born in Halle, trained there. Then he went to Hamburg for a while to work at the opera company, but still, when he was still quite young, uh, he went to Italy to learn the trade at the, it was kind of at the, the heart of where music making was in the period. And so, so what would that, in modern day terms, what would, what would that be the, you know, sort of equivalent of? I guess it was uh, something like an Australian musician picking up and heading to Europe or to the US to do a, a master's degree maybe, to expand their career, to get professional experience in one of the major centres like London or New York or mm. Berlin, uh, to kind of get outside their country comfort zone and uh, learn from the, the cutting-edge musicians of the time. So that's what he's doing in, in Italy. Uh, and from there, he then gets uh, his first proper job, which is an appointment to the court of Hanover. So is this an appointment uh, that was sort of a fait compli? Had he already uh, proven himself to be a you know, competent composer, an interesting composer, interesting enough to, to catch the eye of, of uh, one of the royal families? Or, you know. Yeah, he was doing really well in Italy. Uh, he was still a very young man in his 20s and just starting to make his career, but he had some opportunities to write uh, sacred music and chamber music, which meant uh, chamber can Tartars, so not sacred ones but, but secular ones, uh, for some of the leading families in Rome. And uh, then partly because of war breaking out, he uh, moved to Venice and he had a success with opera. 
so he is uh, still a young man, a foreigner, but he is really starting to make a name for himself and he's achieving, in a way, what he probably set out to. Does history record how Handel um, ever met uh, George, soon to be George the, the First? Yeah, so he um, was picked up essentially from this Italian sojourn and offered the job of Director of Music at Hanover, which is uh, a huge thing for somebody at the beginning of his career. It's a proper court appointment. Wow. So, yeah, he is uh, really an up-and-coming young musician. Um, and so he uh, he takes the job in Hanover, but he, at the same time he also has an offer to do an opera season in London. Hmm. Now, this is also a great opportunity. And I was trying to think of an analogy. It's, it's kind of almost as if he's... Uh, a, an up-and-coming cricketer, and he gets, um, you know, gets the offer of a an opera of a uh, opera Australia of a, a cricket Australia contract. Yes, to play for a Sheffield Shield team. You know, it's a steady income to do the thing that he loves to do in a reasonably prestigious environment. Um, but he's doing so well that he concurrently gets an offer from the IPL to go and play in India for six weeks and get paid ten times the salary for a quarter of the work. So I guess the question is just how frivolous a man was handled. <laughs> Uh, did he? Did it, it, well? Was he ever someone to uh, jump ship when it suited him? When the when the or was he someone that was more conservative in his uh, thinking and and his um his his ideas about his career and and what he wanted to do? I don't think he was frivolous at all about it, but I think he was a serious professional looking for the way to advance his career in the best way. Handel gets this opportunity in Hanover. But he takes uh, a kind of um, secondment to go to London for to present operas, uh, not really expecting that within a couple of years his employer, the Elector of Hanover, will be invited to become the King of England. So, so, the, so the big surprise in all of this was not that Handel was invited a, a, a very lucrative offer, clearly, to, to go and, and, and begin uh, composing opera for the London stage, but more so that George the First was in, you know, uh, called up to become the... <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a complete surprise in that it was known that George was uh, in line. He was, I think, initially third in line to the English throne. So it was always a possibility that he would come. Uh, but the reason it, it was an, an issue for Handel was because uh, he had taken this sort of short-term job supposedly to go to London but he was doing so well and being so successful and making so much money that he was uh, getting requests to go home to, hum to, to Hanover to his proper job and uh, kept sending messages saying, well, I'm coming shortly. You know, I'll be there in a while. Right. <laughs> and not going. Right. It must have been embarrassing to him when his employer, the Elector of Hanover, becomes the King of England and comes across. And certainly he was not taken on immediately as a court musician. Now, this has sometimes been uh, interpreted to to imply that the king must have been angry with him for his failure to do his duty in Hanover and mm -hmm. so forth. In reality, it probably had more to do with the fact that George was coming in as a complete foreigner to become king of England. So he didn't himself have the lay of the land, politically speaking, and uh, and know exactly how far he could push or pull certain people and, and ideas. Right. Yeah. Um, George didn't speak English. He No? Uh, no? <laughs> no, he... Um, George I didn't, no. He, uh, interestingly, the court language was French, 
even though he lived in Germany. Yeah, well, of, but yes. His, but his, so his languages were French and German, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so he was coming in to be king of a country he had never been to, uh, where he was not known, where he didn't speak the language. Obviously, there's a certain amount of political uh, care needing to be taken around this. And I think it's, it was probably the case that he could not be seen to be favouring other Germans around the court. Just as a matter of kind of public relations and politics, he needed to be seen to be presenting himself as the legitimate King of England uh, and as English as he could appear to be to the public. So how did a German-born Lutheran composer end up with the job to compose the coronation anthems for uh, King George II and his his wife, uh, Queen Caroline? Well, although George's father, George I, had been King of England since 1714, following the death of Queen Anne, George II had been left behind in Hanover and had not seen his father for 14 years. Right. So he spoke only French, uh, the court language, until he was four. Then he learnt German. As, so even though he was German, he only learnt German as a child from his tutor. Well, later, he learned English and Italian because he knew that he was in line for the English throne. But he was still basically a German, and so was his wife, Queen Caroline. So, as a foreigner, as a foreigner coming in, he also had to promote himself as English. But uh, by this, uh, so I guess there's a personal connection in that Ger- that uh, Handel is German, speaks German, can communicate well with the king and queen, the new king and queen. Uh, but at the same time, he has the same political problem as his father. He needs to be seen to be working within the court structures and uh, and using the English musicians. So this so, wasn't a fait accompli? Just... Not at all, no. Uh, and in fact, in a way, it was an anomaly that Handel was the composer appointed to write the coronation music. By rights, it probably should... Well, it would originally have been William Croft, who was the chief composer to the Chapel Royal. But as it happened, Croft died only a week after the king had died. So right. almost immediately they announced the, that the coronation was going to happen. The poor man who should have been writing the music died and had to be replaced. Now, I don't want to try and suggest anything uh, that's probably not true, but was it due to the fact that he was so excited about the job, the opportunity? No, I, 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 that's just being facetious. So, no, I, I think Croft by this stage was an old man. I yeah. <laughs> but he was replaced not by Handel, but by Maurice Green. So what, what relationship did Handel and Maurice Green share? Handel, by this stage, has been in London for a number of years. Yeah. They, they, they knew each other? Ah, yes, indeed, yeah. And uh, I think uh, when we talked about this before, you were reminding me how Green actually pumped the bellows for Handel when he was playing the organ. Yes, I, I'd read a little bit about it, and I was uh, almost astounded because Maurice Green himself was considered as a, a promising musician, oh. and uh, and yet uh, uh, he uh, made himself as subservient as one musician can be to another to pump the bellows just in order to hear Handel playing at, at the organ. And I think it was a case of... He recognised Handel's talents, uh, was drawn to it, uh, uh, drawn to them, and uh, and wanted to learn and and uh, as much as possible. And he was indeed uh, ten years uh, uh, Handel's junior. Yeah. So potentially one could imagine some sort of you know much older brother idea where where Maurice Green recognises the talent in this this uh, older more established composer and wants to learn from him. Yeah, I think that's right. That Handel is clearly the preeminent composer in London by this. Stage. He's uh, has a 
the successful career writing operas for the London theatres and so forth. So he's clearly the, the preeminent musician. And I'm not wrong in saying George I, his, his death was rather sudden. Uh, yes, it was, yeah. So, so, so a, the big job comes up. Yep. Coronation is going to be happening. Yep. And Handel's chosen? Yeah, so why is that? Well, Green is appointed to the official position as the composer to the Chapel Royal, but uh, it looks like probably what happened was, uh, although that was the official appointment, which allows you to have an Englishman in the official job as a court composer, uh, and it was possibly a job that Handel wouldn't have wanted anyway, of, of write, being primarily a court musician writing music for the Royal Chapel, as opposed to being a theatre musician, which is what he primarily was. But in the situation where the, the new king... Uh, wants to have the best possible, most spectacular, most memorable music for the coronation. Uh, there's really only one person you could ask, and so it may be, even we don't know for sure, but it may even be that the king insisted on having Handel to write the music because he knew what how good it would be. Now, uh, everyone obviously can immediately recognise um, the music that starts when we, we hear Zadok the priest and, and the, the orchestral music that, that precedes the entry of the, the choir, this very stately music. Uh, my question to you is, uh, on the day, did everything go as per what Handel had written? Or were there... Not exactly, no. It's surprising to us today because we think of these great state occasions like uh, coronations, royal weddings and so forth, and you see these things on TV and they are planned down to the second. You can just see how precise everything is. It all runs like clockwork. Indeed, Um, yes. But in the 18th century, it doesn't seem to have been the same thing at all. One reason that we know this is because... The, a copy of the order of service for the coronation has survived, which was the personal copy of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he made notes on it, either during or after the service, of how it all went. And uh, there were several things that, that went wrong. At the beginning of the service, it was supposed to open with the choir of Westminster Abbey singing the anthem, The King Shall Rejoice. This is not one of Handel's. It was one by Purcell or possibly by his teacher Blow, but it was the one which was had been used to the previous couple of coronations right. at the opening, and they simply didn't sing it at all. They they skipped it for some reason. They forgot or nobody gave them the cue or something, and it didn't happen. But, uh, but I mean, surely you can't just forget to, to perform the music that's been put in front of you. I... Yeah, we and we don't really know what happened, but uh, it was the the Archbishop annotated on his his program by the negligence of the choir of Westminster. Right, so whatever what that might might mean. Yeah. Yes, it could well be that um, simply they they didn't get the cue. The the choir director couldn't see where they were up to or where the the procession was up to, and uh, nobody gave him the signal to say now is the moment when you have to do it or something, but. Perhaps the moment had passed, and by the time they realised they were supposed to be too seen, late, yeah, they'd uh, gone on to the uh, to the next thing. So that one was missed out, but at least it wasn't one of Handel's uh, one of Handel's anthems. How does the the term anthem fit into this? Okay, so uh, an anthem is uh, an English sacred piece which took the place of what in the Catholic tradition was called a motet. Uh, so it's a kind of standalone piece which would be featured 
somewhere in the church service. Uh, usually it would be on a sacred text, um, text from the Bible normally. Uh, and uh, it was a form that evolved gradually from the uh, late 16th century through the 17th century in the Anglican tradition. Uh, so it's building on the tradition of, um, of Catholic, of Catholic um, music, uh, which was relatively international in the 16th century. Then following mm. the Reformation, uh, it gradually differentiates itself. Right. A lot of this is about making the words really clear, because particularly in Protestantism, though also in Counter-Reformation, Reformation Catholicism, uh, the idea of conveying the sacred words really clearly becomes important. So clearly text was, was a large uh, and very important part of, of his compositional um, uh, pro- dilemma here. Uh, now, uh, would he have been the one to choose this text? Uh, yes, he was. Uh, he was making a selection from a predetermined set of texts that were suitable for using in coronations and which had been used previously. But uh, he insisted on making the choice himself. In fact, uh, he got a message from the archbishop saying that uh, would he like some advice on, you know, they would like to tell him what, what text to use. And Handel sent back a terse message saying uh, he knew his Bible perfectly well and he would choose them for himself. <laughs> wow, OK. <laughs> yeah. that, that's Handel. He was, he was not a man to, to uh, miss about. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so he chose the, the text himself. Uh, some of them were pretty much set, like um, the, the Zadok text uh, was uh, the one that was used for the anointing of the king. And in fact, it had been in use uh, by then since uh, the late 10th century. 10th century, right. Yeah. So we're going very way, way back in, in, in That's history. Right. Yeah, I think so, so nowadays we understand Zadok is often presented to us in, in any event as the first of uh, Handel's four anthems. But where would Zadok have uh, occurred in terms of the, the anointing and, and the liturgy of the, the, the coronation? Would it have been heard first? Was that the first thing? Uh... No, it's actually um, uh, in the order of the various anthems. In fact, there were um, 10 anthems throughout the whole service. Uh, it was number four. So it came about halfway through at the point where the king was anointed. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Zadok is that they, although they sang it more or less in the right place in the ceremony, they actually didn't pick the right spot. They went too early in this case. So uh, it was supposed to be after the anointing of the king has been announced, there's a series of prayers, and then the actual ceremony of anointing, right. at which point they were supposed to sing Zadok the priest. And that probably explains part of why it's composed the way it is, with this long, grand introduction, Yes, which is probably while the king and the um, clergy are getting organised, that he's going up to take his place on the... Um, on the throne and so forth. They're getting ready the anointing oil and all of that stuff. And perhaps at the moment where we get that great outburst of the choral sound with the trumpets and so forth is the moment at which they would actually apply the oil to him and anoint him as king.
a singer myself, and, and I'm sure you've sung the anthems many times as, as well, Alan. There's this 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 some sort somehow procession towards an event, and it is so full of ceremony and and, um, and I, I suppose spark and, and and anticipation before that initial uh, entry with the choir and the, and, and the trumpets. That it, it you the, if the hairs on the back of your neck aren't uh, aren't already standing, I mean you know you you're probably deaf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's an it's uh, a great example of. Handel's technical command that he's able to string out this long, long, long build-up as if he's saying to us, wait for it, wait for Mm. it. And the tension builds up and up and up. And he does this not with melody, essentially, but with harmony. You can hear the harmony, the tension in the harmony growing and growing. So imagine I know nothing about harmony or anything. So, so what is it about harmony? How, do you want to explain maybe what you mean by how the harmony could build towards, towards some sort of outburst like this as we hear with the choir? Yeah, I guess for you as a composer, Hugh, it's, a, uh, it's one of the, an interesting study. How do you create this kind of effect? But to me as a musicologist, what I see is... The, the tension builds up in the harmony, that there are dissonances layered on top of each other, chords that seem to be leading towards uh, a point of arrival. And just when you think it's arriving, it goes off in a different direction so that mm. it keeps us in suspense, waiting to get to this glorious moment when suddenly, when finally it's built up so much, it's almost as if the, the, the water behind the dam is, has built up so high, the dam bursts and crash, you get this enormous outpouring of sound. How would uh, the performance of uh, Handel's Anthems and Fireworks coming up with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra uh, compare with with the sort of performance that would have been heard at Westminster Abbey? Um, So the performance in Westminster Abbey, as we said, was with really big forces for the time. They had uh, over 40 in the choir and something like 160 in the orchestra. So we can't fit that many people on the stage. But we, we, we do have 34 in the choir this... Uh, sorry, no, 31 in the choir this time. OK. So by rights we should have, what, 120 or something in the orchestra? Yes, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if there are that many period uh, violins uh, uh, you know, available yeah, it, in Australia. It is an interesting question because... Um, the instrumental forces, uh, so just a great big string orchestra essentially and, and oboes, I guess, and trumpets for, mm-hmm. the, uh, for the coronation, coronation anthems. Um, and, uh, but when these things were performed in concert, as Handel also did um, from time to time with, because the music from the coronation, uh, he borrowed elements from it to use in some of his later oratorios. It was famous music. It was uh, had this grand association with the monarchy and so forth, so it would have been a pity to waste it by not using it for other things. Mm. Um, and similarly with the fireworks music, although he was required to write it in a certain way for this one-off outdoor performance, uh, to get more mileage out of the music, he did uh, a different version of it arranged for indoor performance which makes, is less heavy on the wind and brass mm. and makes more use of the strings, as you would expect for an indoor performance. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the music for the Royal Fireworks by no means was an integral part of the original plan. Uh, that ceremony and, and the, the, the fireworks themselves, which had been planned, uh, were not going to be accompanied by any music. Well, 
certainly the idea of the whole thing was built around the fireworks display itself. That was the, the key to the whole thing. It was in celebration of the end of the War of the Austrian Succession, which uh, had not been popular in England, but at least uh, the English came out of it reasonably well in the final settlement, and so it was politically important to have some kind of a celebration of this. And the fireworks thing was going to be the centrepiece of this. And so it was prepared, in fact, months in advance. Uh, they hired in an Italian architect to design this uh, outdoor um, building, which was built uh, just a, a faux building, a pretend building. They called it the machine, right? That's right, yeah, uh, in Green Park. And um, so this was built over a period of months by workmen wor- working flat out. They were working on Sundays and doing overtime and night Italians and working things. on Sundays? <laughs> I don't know the builders were <laughs> the designers. So, so, but it, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, Germans writing music for English kings, and then Italians uh, creating structure, you know, architects and building structures for fireworks. It's it's very cosmopolitan. It is, yeah, and that's because for a big event like this, you get the best people available, and that's who the best people were. Initially, the idea seems to have been that they would be playing music while the fireworks were set off, and then it occurred to them that this was probably a really bad idea because the fireworks would be extremely noisy and you wouldn't actually hear the music. Yes. So in the event, they actually played the music first uh, and then let off the fireworks. Did everything go as planned? (laughs) Well, this is the 18th century, so... (laughs) No. Um, uh, And it was probably a good thing that they'd finished playing the music because partway through the firework display, the the machine, this, uh, this building... Um, caught fire and half yes. of it burnt down. So if the musicians had been there playing while it was burning down, that probably would not have been a good outcome. <laughs> so luckily they'd been able to finish before. Handel may not have had any professionals left to, to <laughs> put on his productions. Yeah. So who would have been invited to a ceremony like this? Well, it was uh, a, probably a bit novel because uh, they would have been... Um, the tradition for this kind of thing, for, for large... Uh, celebrations for a peace treaty, something like that, you would typically have um, parades of military parades in the street, you would have a grand church service at which you would probably perform a Te Deum. In fact, Handel wrote the Dettingen Te Deum for that kind of of event. Uh, Otherwise, you would expect the celebrations to be perhaps within the court. But this one was actually a public event. So Green Park was the king's personal park, and so in that sense it's it's on the king's territory. Right. But it was an open event, to, uh, open to the public, and anybody could go and see the fireworks. So obviously being performed outdoors, um, did this have an influence on the music and the instrumental choices that Handel, Handel made? Certainly did. And uh, as we were saying, the, the plan originally had not been to include music, and the king was not actually keen on the idea of having music at all. And, if, and he eventually said he would agree to it uh, as long as there were no fiddles. <laughs> Right. Meaning string instruments. Yes. No, no. When it was put to him in terms of being a grand military band made up of, of wind and brass, uh, then he thought that would be okay. Mm. They put that to Handel, and Handel was not at all keen to do it without any strings at all. So he kind of compromised by having a huge wind band, but also reinforcing it with some strings. And uh, as you uh, mentioned earlier, he, he was able to take that material and turn it into probably the version of the music that he would have preferred, which was the, the orchestral version that, that we probably are more uh, used to hearing uh, nowadays. Yeah. Uh, I guess for somebody like Handel, it would have been a fantastic opportunity to to do something on a spectacular grand outdoor scale mm. and the sort of thing you would never get to do in any other 
situation. And so I, I expect he enjoyed that because the forces that he had finished up with for the outdoor performance were nine trumpets, nine horns, 24 oboes, 12 bassoons, three sets of timpani, including the giant double timpani of the artillery train, <laughs> right, <laughs> plus some strings. Right, so that's a, an extraordinary sound. And if you get the chance, there is a, a wonderful YouTube video of that version being played uh, at the London Proms in 2012 by the French group Le Concert Spirituel. Uh, and how do how do the, when you talk about trumpets and horns and these oboes, how do those instruments of the time differ to what I imagine in terms of my knowledge in modern music and, and modern instruments? Yeah, they are recognisably the same instruments, but they sound a fair bit different and they're played in a different way, particularly the brass. So the horns and trumpets at that time were what we now call natural horns and natural trumpets, meaning that they had no valves the way that modern ones do and they had no keys or holes. Uh, it was simply a metal tube with a mouthpiece on one end and a flared bell on the other. And so it played the notes that you could get out of the harmonic series. Mm. So that's the overtone series that you get built into any funda one fundamental note. The higher you, those harmonics go, the closer they get together. So by playing on the notes that are at the top end of that harmonic series, you can get pretty much a scale but it limits the notes that you can use. And in fact, some of them are just a weeny bit out of tune because that's simply how the, the harmonic series works, and you can hear that in some of the recordings and performances. The horn, trumpets and horns, in a sense, are supposed to sound like that because that's the way the instruments work. So with the Brandenburg's performance of Music of the Royal Fireworks, what should we expect to hear? How similar would it be to, to those sorts of horns that you've just mentioned? Well, we're, we're going to be hearing it on natural trumpets and natural horns. Uh, they may not be exactly the same as the ones that were originally used and uh, but they're essentially the same instrument they don't have any valves or keys uh, and the pitch is made by the way that the player blows through the instrument essentially it's breath pressure lip control that allows you to run up and down the harmonic series to get all of those notes Now, going away from brass and stepping back in time a little bit, uh, the oboe concerto that we're going to be hearing in the concert uh, is uh, suggested to be the oldest surviving uh, concerto for solo oboe. Uh, is that is that true? Uh, how, how do we even know that sort of thing? It was it was Handel's first oboe concerto. We think so. Yes. Yeah. 
the interesting thing about this particular concerto is that it uh, it doesn't survive in an original manuscript by Handel, although only in 1993 a set of parts for it was discovered, which is attributed to Handel and dates from somewhere around that period of the 18th century, though we can't be sure. So which years are we talking about specifically? So... The, the main source that we have for it, which has the whole score, is actually a 19th century publication, which says right. on it that it was by Handel, written in 1703 in Hamburg. So, so this predates the, the uh, operatic uh, sojourn in Italy. This predates uh, Handel moving to London and everything in terms right. of his employment with George I. And uh, does it represent uh, the same sort of music that we uh, have also know from, from Handel from that period of time? Yeah, stylistically it does seem to fit pretty well with that kind of period. So it may well be that that date is correct, around 1703. And that would kind of make sense because uh, when he's working in Hamburg at this time, he's surrounded by Hamburg musicians, including people like Reinhard Kaiser, who was the main opera composer in Hamburg, the director of the orchestra and so forth. And he, interestingly, was one of the first musicians to include solo oboe in uh, his operas accompanying arias and so on so it would kind of make sense that there is a tradition of solo oboe playing there however at the same time the same kind of thing has been happening uh, and in fact it's probably where they got it from in venice right and which is the home of opera and we have certainly venetian oboe concertos from around the same time including by people like vivaldi and so forth um uh, most of which are not dated. That's the thing. Most of the scores don't... Uh, the, the composer or the copyist who's writing out the score didn't often write a date on it. So these parts that we've uh, very recently found, in fact, have a date on them which allows them to be dated as, as, as some of the earliest uh, music written essentially for, for, for solo, solo uh, over concerto. Part, no? part of the dilemma with this, and it's so often the case when we're dealing with primary sources, is uh, unfortunately the, the people at the time were not really writing for us. You know, they were not writing for posterity, they were writing for practical use here and now. And so they didn't record a lot of the things we wish they had. Mm. Um, so so the, what so was the usual role of the oboe in the or- in orchestras at the time? Uh, we've talked about it as being obviously uh, used as a solo instrument uh, in in the opera in Hamburg. Uh, so was was it was it considered a solo instrument, or is this a novel use of the the oboe? It's actually a, a, a new instrument, pretty much, in this period. It was only during the 1680s, really, that the oboe was developed as what then was a modern instrument, and the thing that we now call the oboe was developed out of a much older instrument, the shawm, uh, which was used in military bands. It's a, a much louder, more um, more kind of almost raucous sound. The shawms are actually capable of being played both quietly and loudly, but it was considered mostly a sort of uh, noisy instrument for dance music and marching bands and things like that. And so it's refined by um, musicians uh, and artisans working around the French court in the 1670s, 80s, 90s into what we now know as the Baroque oboe. So in the period we're talking about, just in the 1690s into the beginning of the 1700s, it's still a real novelty. It's a new piece of technology, and they're figuring out what they can do with it. Mm. So the fact that we have any kind of solo music from it, for it at all from the 1690s and, and 17, the first decade of the, the 1700s is quite striking in itself. So I think they're still kind of figuring out how to use it, 
And it takes a while, I guess, to build up a cohort of players who are at the level to be able to, mm. to play artistic solo music on it. Were the particular instruments that the oboe was linked to? So uh, imagining that Handel's trying to figure out how to use this instrument, the sorts mm. of melodic writing that could be applied to it, was it uh, harking back to uh, f- f- flutes or recorders as we know them uh, nowadays? Um, or, or was it more linked to violin writing? Where would, where would it have even started? Yeah, it's quite interesting the way they figured that out because one of the main uses for the oboe was doubling the violin so it could just reinforce the violin part in, say, an opera orchestra or something like that. And that's the way uh, they're used quite a bit in the, the sort of writing we get in the fireworks music where it's used as an orchestral instrument. It's often just playing the same, music, same notes along with the violins. First and second violins would be accompanied by first and second oboes playing the same music. And then sometimes as a special effect the violins drop out and let the oboes play it by themselves for a bit as a, as a kind of solo. But the oboe was considered very versatile because it, uh, it had all these associations that went back through its lineage to the shawm and so forth. On the one hand, as a military instrument. So if you didn't have trumpets available in the orchestra, you could write trumpety kind of music, marches and things like that, for the oboes, and that creates that kind of uh, resonance, that that memory, I guess, that people have of what that kind of music sounds like. But on the other hand, it can also be used to represent a pastoral kind of sound. So uh, shepherd's pipes and things like that can be represented by the oboe. So it was considered actually to be the the one instrument that you could use in virtually any kind of music, and it could have a really good effect. A a musical Allen key. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It will unlock any kind of music for you. So I guess... We start out with it used primarily as as an orchestral instrument and as a band instrument in in military bands and so forth. And as you get really proficient players available who can play uh, elegant artistic solos, then composers start to use that where they can. Uh, Maybe in the same way that trumpets are, for the most part, um, instruments that are used for signalling, for outdoor, um, loud, military kind of music. But when you have a really good player who's trained in the really refined way of playing, then you can use it as a solo instrument uh, in the way that we get accompanying opera arias, uh, playing a, a solo part in a concerto, and as we have here in this concerto by Handel. Well, it's been wonderful speaking with you, uh, Alan, and hearing all of this uh, wealth of information that you you have on on, on the topic um, and sharing ideas, of course. Uh, Thank you very much for this inaugural podcast session, and, uh, and I look forward to many more. Thanks, Hugh. It's been great to be part of it.